Allahu Ta'ala declared in the 82nd ayat of Surah Maida of Quran al-Karim, The biggest enemies of Islam are the Jews and Mushriks, those who attribute a partner or partners to Allahu Ta'ala, that is, shirk. Polytheists, people of shirk. The first mischief contrived to demolish Islam from within was instigated by a Jew, namely Abdullah bin Sebeh of Yemen. He established the Shiite sect against the Al-Sunnah, the true Muslim group. From then on, Jews under the cloak of Shiite scholars in every century consolidated this sect. After the ascension of Isa, alayhi salam, an invocation wishing peace be upon a prophet, a number of corrupt Bibles were written. Most of the Christians became mushriks. Others became kafirs, disbelievers, since they did not believe Muhammad, alayhi salam. They and the Jews were called Ar al-Kitab, people with a heavenly book. When Islam was established, the dominance of the priests, as in the Dark Ages, backwardness of Europe during the early Middle Ages, was abolished. They founded missionary organizations to abolish Islam. The British were the forerunners in this regard. A ministry of the Commonwealth was established in London with a view to fighting against Islam. People who worked in this ministry were taught the Jewish tricks. Contriving inconceivably vicious plans, they attacked Islam using all available military and political forces toward this end. Hemfa, only one of the thousands of male and female agents employed and sent forth to all countries by this ministry, entrapped a 14-year-old person named Muhammad of Najd in Basra, misled him for several years and caused him to establish the sect called Wahhabi, also known as Najdis, a non-Madhabi people that are hostile both to the Sunnis and to the Shis. They are also called the Fukad al-Maluna, the accursed group. In 1713-1125, this sect was introduced in 1150. Hemfer is a British missionary who was assigned the task of carrying on espionage activities in Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Hijaz and in Istanbul, the centre of the Islamic Caliphate, misleading Muslims and serving Christianity by means of the Ministry of British Commonwealth of Nations. No matter how assiduously the enemies of Islam may strive to annihilate Islam, they will never be able to extinguish this light of Allahu Ta'ala. For Allahu Ta'ala declares as follows, as purported in the 12th and 63rd ayats of Surah Yusuf and in the 9th ayat of Surah Hujj of Quran al-Karim, I have revealed this Quran to you. Truly, I shall be its protector. Disbelievers will not be able to desecrate it, change it, or defile it. They shall never extinguish that light. For 14 centuries, Muslims worked in the lightsome way taught by Quran al-Karim and made progress in knowledge, in ethics, in science, arts, trade, and politics. They established great states. After the French Revolution in 1789-1204, European youth saw the immoralities, cruelties, robberies and mendacities being perpetuated by churches and priests, 
and, as a result, some of them became Muslims, while others turned into atheists. The farther away from Christianity, the more progress they made in science and technology. But Christianity was an impediment to worldly endeavors and progress. And some Muslims, reading the books written by these young people in order to criticize Christianity, and believing the lies and slanders which the British missionaries directed against Islam, became quite ignorant of Islam. As they were alienated from Islam, they began to decline in science. For one of the principal commandments of Islam is to work for worldly progress. The British state policy is essentially based on methods of exploiting the natural riches of the world, particularly those in Africa and India, employing their inhabitants like beasts and transferring all the resultant revenue to Britain. People who have had the fortune of attaining Islam, the religion which commands justice, mutual love and charity, pose an obstruction contradictory to British cruelties and falsities. This book has been prepared in three sections. The first section, which consists of seven parts, comprises the slanders of the British spy. They were designed by the British for the purpose of annihilating Islam. The second section relates how the British insidiously put their treacherous plans into practice in Muslim countries, how they deceived statesmen, how they inflicted unimaginably bitter torments on Muslims, and how they destroyed the Indian and the Ottoman states. How the Jews and the British attacked Islam is reported with quotations from Hakikat ul Yahud, which was written by Fuad al Abdurrahman Rufai published by Mektabutas Sahabetul Islamiyah in Kuwait Safat Salimiyah. This section of our book is corroborated with documents which will awaken those poor Muslims who are entrapped by the Wahhabis and will support the writings of the scholars the al Sunnah. The third section is the translation of the booklet known as Kulasad Ukalam, which distinguishes Sirat al-Mustaqim, the true path, the blessings of Allah Ta'ala, from Dalala, ways of heresy, for guidance to the right way of Islam. Presently, Muslims world over have parted into three main groups. The first group consists of the true Muslims who have been following in the Sahaba's footsteps. They are called Al-As-Sunnah, or Sunni Muslims, or the Fuqat and the Jia, which means the group who will be protected from hell. The second group is comprised of the enemies to the Sahaba, and they are called the Shis, Shiites, or the Furqat Adalla, the deviating group. The third group is hostile both to the Sunnis and to the Shis. They are called the Wahhabis, or Najdis, because they first appeared in the town of Najd in Arabia. They are also called the Furqat al-Maluna, the accursed group, for, as written in our publications called endless bliss, and the rising and the hereafter. They call Muslims disbelievers, and our Prophet cursed those who would call Muslims as such. Partition of Muslims into these three groups was caused by the Jews and the British. Miladi, 2001 Hijri Sola, 1380 Hijri Luna, 1422 Section 1 Part 1. 
Hemfer says, Footnote. The British published Hemfer's confessions as a means for Christian propaganda. In order to mislead Muslims' children, they wrote lies and fabrications in the name of Islamic teachings. Therefore, with a view to protecting our youth from this British trap, we published this book, which is a correction of their lies and slanders. There are even people who claim that Hemphus' confessions are imaginary stories written by others. But they cannot furnish any evidence to prove this claim of theirs. Our Great Britain is very vast. The sun rises over its seas and sets again below its seas. Yet our state is relatively weak concerning its colonies in India, China and Middle East. These countries are not entirely under our domination. However, we have been carrying on a very active and successful policy in these places. We shall be in full possession of all of them very soon. Two things are of importance. 1. Try to retain the places we have already obtained. 2. Try to take possession of those places we have not obtained yet. The Ministry of the Commonwealth assigned a commission from each of the colonies for the execution of these two tasks. As soon as I joined the Ministry of the Commonwealth, the Minister put his trust in me and appointed me the administrator of our company in East India. Outwardly, it was a trade company, but its real task was to search for ways of taking control of the very vast lands of India. Our government was not at all nervous about India. India was a country where people from various nationalities speaking different languages and having contrasting interests lived together. Nor were we afraid of China, for the religions dominant in China were Buddhism and Confucianism, neither of which was much of a threat. Both of them were dead religions that instituted no concern for life. For this reason, the people living in these two countries were hardly likely to have any feelings of patriotism. These two countries did not worry us, the British government. Yet the events that might occur later on were not out of consideration for us. Therefore, we were designing long-term plans to wage discord, ignorance, poverty and even diseases in these countries. We were imitating the customs and traditions of these two countries, thus easily concealing our intentions. What frazzled our nerves most was the Islamic countries. We had already made some agreements, all of which were to our advantage with the sick man, the Ottoman Empire. Experienced members of the Ministry of the Commonwealth predicted that this sick man would pass away in less than a century. In addition, we had made some secret agreements with the Iranian government and placed in these two countries statesmen whom we had made masons. Such corruptions as bribery, incompetent administration and inadequate religious education which in its turn led to being occupied with pretty women and consequently to neglect of duty, broke the backbones of these two countries. In spite of all these, we were anxious that our activities should not yield the results we expected, for reasons I am going to cite below. 1. Muslims are extremely devoted to Islam. 
Every individual Muslim is as strongly attached to Islam as a priest or monk to Christianity, if not more. As it is known, priests and monks would rather die than give up Christianity. The most dangerous of such people are the Shiites in Iran, for they put down people who are not Shiites as disbelievers and foul. Christians are like noxious dirt according to Shiites. Naturally, one would do one's best to get rid of dirt. I once asked a Shiite this, Why do you look on Christians as such? The answer I was given was this, The Prophet of Islam was a very wise person. He put Christians under a spiritual oppression in order to make them find the right way by joining Allah's religion, Islam. As a matter of fact, it is a state policy to keep a person found dangerous under a spiritual oppression until he pledges obedience. The dirt I am speaking about is not material. It is a spiritual oppression not peculiar to Christians alone. It involves Al-Hasunnah and all disbelievers. Even ancient Magian Iranian ancestors are foul, according to Shiites. I said to him, Well, Al-Hasunnah and Christians believe in Allah, in prophets, and in the Judgment Day too. Why should they be foul then? He replied, They are foul for two reasons. They impute mendacity to our prophet Muhammad, May Allah protect us against such an act. Footnote However, those who impute mendacity to our Prophet are Shiites and Christians. The deviating beliefs, words and dirty works of Shiites which do not conform with those of our Prophet and Quran al-Karim are written and refuted in each of the books of al-Sunnah such as Sawaik ul-Muhrika, Tufa Ithna Ashariha. Tayyud al-Hasuna, Nahye, Ashab Kiram, Kujaz Katye, Amelal Khwanihal. The author of Sahaik, Ahmed Idmi Hajameki, died in Mecca in 1566-974. Tufa's author, Abdul Aziz, died in Delhi in 1824-1239. Tayyid's author, Imam Rabani Rahmed Faruqi, died in Sahend in 1624-1034. Nahye's author Abdulaziz Fakharevi died in 1824-1239. Sahabat al-Kiram's author Abdulhakim Awasi died in Ankara in 1943-1362. Judge's author Abdullah Suwaidi died in Baghdad in 1760-1174. Milal's author, Muhammad Sihristani, died in Baghdad in 1154-548. And we, in response to this atrocious imputation, follow the rule expressed in the saying, If a person torments you, you can torment him in return, and say to them, You are foul. Secondly, Christians make offensive allegations about the prophets of Allah Ta'ala. For instance, they say, Isa, Jesus, Allah, salam, drank alcohol. Because he was accursed, he was crucified. In consternation, I said to the man, the Christians did not say so. Yes, they do, was the answer, and you don't know. 
It is written so in the Holy Bible. I became quiet, for the man was right in the first respect, if not in the second respect. I did not want to continue the dispute any longer. Otherwise, they might be suspicious of me dressed in an Islamic attire as I was. I therefore avoided such disputes. 2. Islam was once a religion of administration and authority, and Muslims were respected. It would be difficult to tell these respectable people that they are slaves now. Nor would it be possible to falsify the Islamic history and say to Muslims, the honour and respect you obtained at one time was the result of some favourable conditions. Those days are gone now, and they will never come back. 3. We were very anxious that the Ottomans and Iranians might notice our plots and foil them. Despite the fact that these two states had already been debilitated considerably, we did not feel certain because they had a central government with property, weaponry and authority. 4. We were extremely uneasy about Islamic scholars. For the scholars of Istanbul and Al-Azhar, centre of Islamic and Arabic learning in Cairo founded by Shiites, and the Iraqi and Damascene scholars were insurmountable obstacles against our objectives. They were the kind of people who would never compromise their principles to the tiniest extent, because they had turned against the transient pleasures and adornments of the world, and fixed their eyes on the paradise promised by Quran al-Karim. The people followed them. Even the Sultan was afraid of them. Sunnis were not so strongly adherent to scholars as were Shiites. The Shiites did not read books. They only recognised scholars and did not show due respect to the Sultan. Sunnis, on the other hand, read books and respected scholars and the Sultan. We therefore prepared a series of conferences. Yet each time we tried, we saw with disappointment that the road was closed for us. The reports we received from our spies were always frustrating and the conferences came to naught. We did not give up hope though, for we are the sort of people who have developed the habit of taking a deep breath and being patient. The minister himself, the highest priestly orders and a few specialists attended one of our conferences. There were 20 of us. Our conference lasted three hours and the final session was closed without reaching a fruitful conclusion. Yet a priest said, Do not worry, for the Messiah, Isa, Jesus and his companions obtained authority only after a persecution that lasted 300 years. It is hoped that, from the world of the unknown, he will cast an eye on us and grant us the good luck of evicting the unbelievers. He means Muslims from their centres, be it 300 years later. With a strong belief and long-term patience, we must arm ourselves. In order to obtain authority, we must take possession of all sorts of media, try all possible methods. We must try to spread Christianity among Muslims. It will be good for us to realise our goal, even if it will be after centuries. For fathers work for their children. A conference was held and diplomats and religious men from Russia and France, as well as from England, attended. I was very lucky. I too attended because I and the minister were in very good terms. In the conference, 
plans of breaking Muslims into groups, making them abandon their faith and bringing them round to belief, Christianizing them, like in Spain, were discussed. Yet the conclusions reached were not as had been expected. I have written about all the talks held in that conference in my book, Ila Melakut il Messi. It is difficult to suddenly uproot a tree that has sent out its roots to the depths of the earth. But we must make hardships easy and overcome them. Christianity came to spread. Our Lord the Messiah promised us this. The bad conditions that the East and the West were in helped Muhammad. Those conditions being gone have taken away the nuisances, he means Islam, that accompanied them. We observe with pleasure today that the situation has changed completely. As a result of the great works and endeavors of our ministry and other Christian governments, Muslims are on the decline now. Christians, on the other hand, are gaining ascendancy. It is time we retook the places we lost throughout the centuries. The powerful state of Great Britain pioneers this blessed task of annihilating Islam.